Osiris. This is The Drop. It's Friday, July 21st. Thank you so much for joining. I have a really cool interview coming up with Alan Paul, who wrote a new book about the Allman Brothers Band, about the album Brothers and Sisters. The book is called Brothers and Sisters. He's going to tell you about it. Um, You're going to hear that right after this very brief intro. I want to tell you that if you're going to see Fish at the Man next week, we are doing a bunch of cool stuff with the Ardmore Music Hall. If you want to come hang out with me, Tom, and the Osiris team on Tuesday... Uh, before the show, we're going to have a shuttle from the Ardmore to the man. You don't have to worry about parking or all that stuff. We're going to have Iron Hill Brewing is going to have some beer. Uh, I'll be there with a bunch of friends, and we're going to take a shuttle to the man and then get a shuttle back to Ardmore from the man after the show. And then there's a late night show, DJ Brownie, my friend, Mark Brownstein, and then the Funkin' Bull All-Stars are going to play, local band, great, great band. Um Wednesday, we are going to have an HF Pod live quick hit recap, me and Megan, possibly some guests, and then Cal Kehoe's solo band. They've only played a couple times. This will be, I think, their third time out. Um, They've just recorded some songs, been writing a lot. Cal's awesome. And then we're going to do the shuttle again to and from the man. So if you're coming to the man and you want to come hang out with us, check out osirispod.com slash philly for more details. On Saturday, August 5th, We are going to have an HF Pod 10th anniversary party in New York. That's the afternoon of the last fish show of that MSG run. Uh, I'll be there with Megan and Tom and Jonathan and Brad and Matt. It's going to be wild. Um, We are going to have an all-star band. If anyone heard or saw the music that uh, we did last December at the Ardmore Music Hall, to celebrate Undermine. That was a Fish kind of 97 style set. This is going to be a Fish 2013 style set with some other uh, with some other tunes and some special guests. So if anyone's uh, around, that's going to be 3 to 5 p.m. before the show in the afternoon. Uh, you can check that out. That'll be at the bitter end. Um, okay, so let's get to this interview with Alan Paul, who wrote this awesome book on the Allman Brothers Band, and uh, I'll see you back here next week. Thanks for tuning in. Peace. All right, I'm here with Alan Paul. Hey, Alan, how's it going? It's great, RJ. How are you? Thanks for having me. Yeah, glad to talk to you. I know we've talked over the years about a lot of different projects and ideas, and and all the while you've been working on these books, <laughs> or at least this book and others. I know you've written several, and um, this book's called Brothers and Sisters, and it's about the, I guess, ostensibly about the making of of that Almond Brothers album, but it's a lot, a lot, you know, broader than that. Um, and happy to talk to you about it. Um, I, I got to read it, and I think it's great. It's there's so much detail, and I think you create the kind of like scene of of that time with the band, and so it was really fun to to read. Um, I guess so. People know, um, and it's coming out in a couple of weeks, July 25th. You can pre-order it now, and there are signed copies available. Where are those available, Alan? We're at Words Maplewood Bookstore and at the Big House Museum from the Allman Brothers, which is Merch Mountain, uh, does merch for Blackberry Smoke and the Allman Brothers and a bunch of other bands. And um, you can find links to all of that on my alanpaul.net website or my Facebook page, if that's easier for anyone. Awesome. And we'll link to that. Um, so, you know, you've written about the Allman Brothers before, and I know you're familiar with with their music and a lot of other music. What made you want to write about this particular album in this period? Well, it's, it's kind of funny. This is somewhat of a pandemic project, like so many things that are coming out these days. Um, 
during the pandemic, I had a conversation with my friend Brad Talinsky, who was my editor at Guitar World magazine for years and written several great books. And we talk all the time about what we're up to. And I had expressed to him that I was sort of looking for something to move beyond the Almond Brothers. And 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 you know, I didn't want to be so identified as the Almond Brothers guy. And Brad said, You're crazy, man. You know, this, you, you know, you you've got all this expertise about a band that people love and care about and that's important in American history. And furthermore, brothers and sisters is underexplored. And we spoke for about an hour. Um and I became convinced he was right. And I started working on it. I called Kirk West, the Allman Brothers tour mystic. I called my agent. I called a bunch of people I trust and they all loved the idea. And it pivoted quite a bit from Brad's original conception. But I don't think I ever would have gone down the road at all if it wasn't for him. So thank you. Um, it, it's good to have friends you trust and talk to uh, about about you know, your ideas, because sometimes they give you great ideas and sometimes they stomp out bad ideas, which is just as valuable. Um, but that's really where that came from. And, and, and it's an unusual situation with the Almond Brothers because Brothers and Sisters is by far their best selling album. Um, it produced their only hit single, Ramblin' Man. Um, and it was the period in which they were really the most culturally relevant uh, of, of their entire career. And yet it had been sort of overlooked and not that explored. It, it ended in some ignominy. They broke up in 1976 under a little bit of a cloud. Um, and then they never had a similar lineup again, which was one lead guitarist and Dickie Betts and Chuck Lavelle on piano. Um, when they did reform in 1979 and then more successfully in 1989 with uh, Warren Haynes, they went back to the original lineup of, of two guitarists and were very much known as a guitar band. And Chuck never became a member again. I think for all those reasons, even the band itself um, sort of underplayed this era. And there was so much interesting stuff that happened. Uh, the more I dug into it, the more I realized that. So um, and that included Watkins Glen, of course, which is the, the largest rock festival ever in collaboration yeah. with the Grateful Dead and also featuring the band. But it really was a partnership between the Allman Brothers Band and the Grateful Dead that led to that. Um, it's the 50th anniversary right after the book comes out. So that was really fun to explore. Uh, it was also not just Watkins Glen, but other shows, including two at RFK Stadium with the dad that was when their relationship peaked um so i explored that in depth and then it led to the formation of southern rock i explored that in depth so i thought it was just a really fascinating time they were involved with the jimmy carter campaign they were involved in indian rights act activism um all of this stuff going on and then greg getting married to share geraldo rivera popping in and out i mean there's just a fascinating cast of characters that made it uh super fun to dig into that's awesome. And I like I'm I'm I would consider myself an All My Brothers fan. I, I you know, listen to live shows mostly, but albums I listen to Phil Maurice or Eat a Peach. And I'm like, I'm not that familiar with his album, which is kind of strange given that like what you said about it, the popularity. But um I think I guess there's you know, there's so much drama that happens. And I'm again like very uh familiar on the surface with like, you know, all the ups and downs, but so much happened right at that in that whatever, I think it was like six months or nine months leading up to the recording of the album. It's insane how much like personal turmoil they went through. Maybe it's a little longer than that, but it's a, it's a pretty compressed time period there that you, you document. And I know you tapped into some new, some new kind of documents and, and archives, but you also used a lot of the, the stuff that you've gathered. So I, is there anything you learned about that time where like all that 
the deaths and the rebirths and the, you know, breakup. I mean, there's so much happening. Does anything like surprise you given how much you already knew about them? Yes. I mean, a ton surprised me, which is exciting because every time I would learn something new or or more depth to something I already sort of knew would just thrill me because I just know that if it's new to me, um, it's pretty much probably going to be new to every reader. Um, there were even things that I learned um and would call up Kirk West, who 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 did, you know, Kirk, Kirk, for those who don't know, was the Allman Brothers tour mystic and really an essential figure in the band from when they reformed in 89 until he retired from the road in 2010. Um, he's their archivist, he was their historian, he was their photographer, he was the road manager, he was the link to fans, he was the guy who um allowed taping you know the band itself didn't kirk was an old deadhead who completely understood taping and so when he became the tour manager and they would go out on the road he would just without even discussing it with the band at first he just told security in every venue to allow taping um which was a key transition point for the band so um I learned things in in this book that Kirk didn't know. So when when Kirk would tell me that he learned something, that was like uh, I don't know. That was like being in sixth grade and getting a gold star on your forehead or from the teacher. You know, that was as good as it gets. <laughs> uh, very exciting. And and part of that um, reason I was able to tap into so much new material was because of these interviews Kirk had done himself, mostly mm-hmm. in 1986 and 87 when the band was broken up. He was writing a book and traveled around and interviewed all the band members and many other people. Um, he had never written the book yet, and then they reformed in 89. He got hired, started doing all that stuff we talked about. And because he was an employee of the band, uh, he never wrote the book. So when I told Kirk about this book, which I already had signed the contract for and was starting to work on, he offered me his tapes, um, which were just incredible, uh, just incredible. They became more central than we realized um, they would be even because they were such a treasure trove. Um and that is part of why, along with in-depth archival research, um, you know, at the Jimmy Carter Museum, at the um, uh, Macon Library, which has this incredible Allman Brothers archive, I was able to get so much new information and more depth on things I already knew. Um, you know, for instance, on, on these interviews with Greg, in the, in the interviews with Greg by Kirk, he talks at length about uh, Dickie Betts and how much he admired him and how Dickie pulled the whole thing out of the fire. And these were things that fans knew and understood. But Greg himself had never that I had seen or anyone had seen um, addressed it so thoroughly. And of course, you know, their relationship became very contentious. And in 2000, finally, it's, you know, it reached an irreconcilable point. Dickie was out of the band. And after which things became more and more contentious in the way they would talk about him. So to hear Greg talk about his love of Dickie and Dickie's strength in the post-Dwayne era and how that allowed them to keep going was really sort of, um, gobsmacking even though i i it wasn't new information it was new to hear greg say it uh which was very significant that's just one example there were there were a lot of other things that were absolutely just brand new that's really cool yeah and i think the you know the death of Dwayne obviously like rocked the whole the whole band and i didn't know as much about the inner inner band dynamics um but it seems like that that immediate period like if he had if he had lived, it would have been a completely different band and a completely different direction and different music, even. Hundred percent, completely different. It, it, in a way that's, you know, you can't even 
it's hard to even imagine what it would have been, but it would have been very different um, without a doubt. And it, it, it's one of the most amazing pivots in rock history, although it doesn't appear so on the surface because Dwayne was an interesting character in which he was the unquestioned leader, but he wasn't the singer and he wasn't the songwriter. Yeah, um, right. And right. they still had Dickie Betts and they still had Greg Allman. Greg and Dickie were the singers and they were the songwriters. And so that enabled them to keep going. I mean, they still had this great creative force. They still had the singers. They still had the songwriters, which is what most people associate um, with being the, the band or the keep people off the band. But Dwayne was the motivator. He was the guy who dealt with the management. He was the guy who kept them going. He was the guy who united very different personalities, uh, although everyone might not have had the closest friendships personally. Um, they didn't have conflicts because uh, Dwayne didn't allow that to be the case. They all just were uh, completely dedicated to Dwayne and then threw Dwayne to the music as a whole. And so when he suddenly disappeared, yes, they still have this great band. They still have the singers and songwriters, but they didn't have that unifying force. Um, and neither Greg nor Dickie had the personality to exactly be the leaders. Yeah. So they each took turns at various times. And certainly in this time, it was Dickie who really stepped up. Yeah, it's really cool to read about. And um, I guess the the um, question that I had just kind of reading through here is just, you know, their, their songwriting was pretty prolific, but um, it seemed to have come together in a pretty like ramshackle kind of way. It wasn't like, it just felt like everyone was kind of off doing their own thing. Like Craig was recording a solo album and they're, some it almost reminded me a little bit of like the Beatles get back documentary where there's like people wandering in and out of the studio and not everyone is around really at the same time, but it, it somehow yeah. came together. Like who, yeah, who that, kind of that, pulled it together? That's a good comparison. Um, you know, different people pulled it together at different times, it, 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 but ultimately on this album on brothers and sisters, it was Dickie Betts um, because Greg was, sort of out to lunch. He was emotionally adrift. Um, he had lost his brother. He was struggling with this heroin addiction. But at the same time, he was incredibly creatively fertile. So it's not that cut and dry because he also was recording Laid Back, which was his first solo album and really his best solo album. I, I think it's safe to say um, of his of his career. So it, it's a little bit of a contradiction to say Greg wasn't all there because at the same time he was recording two fantastic albums. <laughs> and so it, it's hard to, it's hard to reconcile that. Um, it, but I, I, I think I do. So I think when you read the book, it makes sense. <laughs> it explains it. Um, it, you know, Greg was sort of the, the creative energy he had was more so going into laid back. Um, Come and go blues is the one big exception. I mean, that's the album that he, that's the song, I'm sorry, that he wrote uh, for Brothers and Sisters and played that I think is an absolute classic. Um, and that really stands the test of time. But most of the other creative energy on that album was coming from, from Dickie. He wrote Jessica, uh, he wrote and sang Ramblin' Man, um, which are probably the two landmark songs of the album. Uh, yeah. And, and, you know, really in the rock pantheon. Yeah. Um, you know, also uh, Southbound, Pony Boy. So, so, so Dickie really sort of took the reins as the, as the leading creative force, um, which eventually Greg would come to resent a bit, but mm -hmm. in real time, it wasn't really a struggle. It was just that Greg wasn't doing it and Dickie did. Yeah. Yeah. Do you think that they were prepared or or anticipated this album being as successful as it as it became? 
Not really, but one of the things I realized in writing this book that I hadn't fully understood um, is that they did, it didn't come out of nowhere. So, you know, the the, the uh, June 9th and 10th, 1973 shows with the Grateful Dead at RFK Stadium, 83,000 people in two days. That's two months before the album came out. Then, uh, you know, a month later, they play two sold out shows at Madison Square Garden, right before Watkins Glen, where they go and do 600 plus thousand. Um, obviously, that wasn't just the Allman Brothers. It was the Grateful Dead. It was the band. It was the whole event. But they were surging. They, that all happened before the album came out. And so it's not like they were a club band and, and they had a hit single and became this giant thing. It was building, building, building. Um, but it was the success of Ramblin' Man that kicked it up to a major uh, major degree. And I think younger people, something that they can't understand, I try to explain this to my kids all the time, but people a lot older than my kids still, when something became a hit in that time, it really was ubiquitous. I mean, you know, as as popular as you, you look at a band like Fish, they can sell out all these things. There's most of America doesn't even know what a Fish song sounds like. You could even take a Beyonce or or Taylor Swift. I mean, tremendous uh, stadium acts with huge followings and popularity. But I bet a lot of people listening to this couldn't think of ten Taylor Swift songs or Beyonce songs or know what they sound like. Um, and, and I'm I'm only saying that because. When a song became a hit then, we didn't have so many choices of what to listen to. So when something became huge on the radio, you just heard it over and over and over. Mm -hmm. You might have loved it, um, of course, but you knew it. And um, Ramblin' Man was the first song that the Allman Brothers did that that had that kind of hit uh, impact. And uh, became an AM radio hit. At the time, a lot of cars only had AM radio. And they had really limited playlists. So when a song became a hit, it played like every 45 minutes. Um, <laughs> I was quite young myself, but I remember it. I mean, you would just hear Ramblin' Man everywhere. You know, yeah. like pull into a gas station and there's a car playing Ramblin' Man. Everywhere you went, you just heard it. Um, so there could be a ubiquity to, to culture in a way that is is a bit lost to us now for for both better and worse. I mean, I, I think there's some great, wonderful things about the way things run now, um, including the, the access to everything we want at any time. <laughs> Just wasn't the case then. Right, right. So we're we're in the 50th uh, anniversary here of 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 the 73, right? I mean, there's and this um, I. I, w I hope that this was all coordinated to um, that your book release was coordinated with the release of this RFK 73 show, which just came out a couple months before this <laughs> album. But we're all like, you know, between the 50th anniversary of a lot of 73 albums and and releases, we're kind of reliving 73 in some cases. But one, my last question or, or observation, I just still feel like the Elman Brothers are kind of underappreciated in popular music and like this book helped me see in in more detail just the songwriting focus and the the talent of these guys because I think even though I've listened to them my whole life like I still don't think of them as necessarily like you know a songwriting band I think of them as like awesome performers and I'm just wondering like do you do you think that they're underrated in like the you know a broader musical sense I, I mean I do think they are but you know I don't think that 
they they had an ability to snatch victory or snatch defeat from the jaw of victory over and over. I mean, they made a lot of missteps. So some of that is is on them. Some of it is just a weird cultural thing, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think the Grateful Dead is an exception that proves the rule. I mean, they somehow were able to transcend everything. I mean, they had a lot of the same personal dramas and problems and they somehow were able to overcome it uh keep this organization together and keep going and become uh have this second third fourth lives and and become the stadium band that they were and that uh, you know against all odds sort of are again i mean if you if you yeah. want to look at the dead and company as the extension of the dead but um in terms of the songwriting i, I think that's true but i i think you can say the same thing about the dead i mean People think about them as as you know their their great soloing and improvisation and jamming and everything, but I mean, I believe the reason that they had the impact they had is because of the great uh, songs that 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 was all based around. I mean, um, and, and American Beauty and Working Man's Dead are you know have parallels to things that the Allman Brothers were doing, and 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 they were all influencing each other, and the band had a huge influence with music from the Big Pink. Yeah. And I think that that songwriting really is the key. And I, I think that's what elevated the the Almond Brothers Band and the Grateful Dead amongst so many others. Um, you know, in, in, in different settings, um, you know, certainly Garcia and Robert Hunter could have been making great Americana country albums if that's what Jerry had wanted to do. And Greg Almond could have been a singer songwriter if he had not joined the Almond Brothers Band. Dickie Betts maybe could have been an outlaw country star with Willie Nelson and Waylon Jennings. Um, you know, because people don't just write Ramblin' Man or Midnight Rider, right. you know, or Friend of the Devil or Dire Wolf, you, you know, for this, this, this uh, put those in the same sort of category. I mean, these are fantastic classic songs that belong in the American songbook. Um, and, and that is really what elevated to me both of those bands. Um, and then, of course, there was the great instrumentation and jamming. I don't mean to overlook that, um, but it's the combination of the two that made both of those bands so special. That's awesome. Thanks for going into that. And thanks for this book. I mean, this is a great read and um, I, I hope people are able to check it out. Um, we'll put a link to to your website where they can find everything, alanpaul.net. But um, super happy for you, man. And I, I hope the, the rest of the launch goes well. Thank you so much, OJ. I really appreciate it. I love what you guys are doing and I appreciate the support and, and uh, you know, being part of the family and being able to reach out to your family because it's it's a great community. Oh, thanks, Alan. Thank you. And everyone check this out, brothers and sisters. It comes out on July 25th. Um, Thanks, Alan. Thank you, RJ. Service.